Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. Tesda and the local community is blocking the work from continuing. So really asked if we could just be praying uh, for them. And so Lord, we do pray for that work at Bethesda, a light, a ministry in a dark place. Uh, giving Lord uh, ministry caring for children, for orphan children. Uh, desperately in need, and yet, Lord, uh, we're living in a broken world where selfishness uh, prevails. And I do pray that this work would be able to go on unhindered, and that sense, sanity would prevail even in that community, we ask. And Lord, as we turn to your word this morning, we do pray that you would open our hearts on this day, and even leading us forward into these coming years ahead, and Lord, you being served and you being honored, in Jesus' name, amen. Who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once? A hypocrite before others, and before myself, a contemptibly woebegone weakling. Or is something within me still like a beaten army, fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. Well, that was something I read just a week or so ago, written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and immediately could identify with it. And like Bonhoeffer, many of us, in moments of reflection, can feel conflicted. I think that's the issue. There are many times when we really think about our, ourselves, our lives, and, and who we are, we, we are conflicted. Who, who, who am I, and, and who am I becoming? And so as we turn to this passage this morning and, and thinking about all that has taken place in just three months, you'll notice that in, in, in the first verse, since they had been uh, moved out and rescued from, from Egypt, uh, rescued from slavery, I can only imagine amongst these people, amongst those who are thinking uh, deep down in their minds, in uh, stirring questions, Lord, who am I? What, what is my identity? Uh, remember that these people for generations had been slaves. It had been imprinted on their minds that they belong, as it were, we would say, at the bottom of the food chain. They were second-rate human beings, uh, told that repeatedly. Their daily routine would, was life under taskmasters who, who, who would 
again and again just be a reminder to them, a vivid reminder of them being people subjected and used to gross injustice, a complete lack of freedom, harsh, hard labor. And so I have no doubt in their minds for generations and, and even now wondering, we are slaves and we, and we know what a slave feels like. We know what a slave looks like. But now, everything seems to have changed. With their newfound freedom, still, yes, facing hardships along the way, on their way to the promised land, the, the, the nagging question, the nagging question, and I believe it's a question that we ask even today, who are we and what are we becoming? That's what I want us to look at in this passage this morning. And I do want you to reflect about that as well. Who are you? How do you see yourself? What is your identity? What are you growing to be? Who are you becoming? And so in the first place, it is clear to me from what God tells Moses to tell them that they are privileged recipients. It's privileged recipients. The people of Israel, surely they must have realized that they were given that which was beyond their wildest expectations. And I'm going to run through a number of these uh, things, these, these privileges that they, that they received from the hand of God. The first one is implied in the passage. I've called it recipients of a divine promise. Reminded me of a string of messages that I have on my WhatsApp uh, app. Recent weeks, I have accumulated a string of undertakings from an appliance mechanic. Our washing machine is broken. And he came to the house and asked me for, it was a few thousand rand. He was going to get the pot and he would be back within a day or two. Well... I have reminded him, I have asked him, and to be honest, he does at least come back to me and tells me he will come tomorrow, and then again tomorrow, and then again tomorrow. And, and, and I think that's what we get used to in this life that we live. <laughs> like me, I think you be, be, have become, and we are suspicious and weary of the promises that people make, undertakings that people give. And so often we find ourselves on the receiving end of empty promises. But unlike our everyday disappointments of unkept promises, the arrival of Moses and the people of Israel, now this is where the detail is important. The arrival at the mountain, very significant mountain that they arrived at. They arrived at this mountain three months after the departure from Egypt, and their arrival is in fulfillment of God's solid undertaking that he gave to Moses before the Exodus. And I'm going to remind you, we did look at this passage some months ago, uh, God first revealing himself to Moses at the burning bush. He said to him in chapter 3, verse 12, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. As a fulfillment of the promise of God. 
They were now at that mountain. And so in Moses' mind, in the minds of the people who had been told these things, there is now the legitimacy of God as the true God. The matter was now settled. God had shown his people the sign. He had made good on his promise. He had brought them, as he said, to worship on this holy mountain. Commentators are not sure exactly which mountain in the Sinai Peninsula. And uh, some years ago, I had the privilege of climbing Mount Sinai. And, uh, but it's, there, there are lots of mountains, so you're not quite sure exactly which one it is. But there's a stark contrast between the surrounding area and desert and the mountain. And the point I'm, I'm wanting to make is that we don't know exactly which place it was, However, however, what we do know and what we see from this chapter is that the grandeur of the mountain in the context in which, is, which it is found in some small way represents the grandeur of God. And, and we'll see that in coming weeks as we read on in chapter 19. You'll see something of the greatness and the power and the majesty and the transcendence, the bigness of God. The point being that God's undertakings have the unfailing backing of the incomparable, unstoppable power that he has. He can, and folk, learn that this morning. Reminded, Be reminded of that this morning. God can bring about all that he has promised. He does bring about all that he has promised. He, he sticks to his undertakings. The nature of God is such that he keeps his word expressed, and we sang it this morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Man, I could hear you singing with such zeal and such gusto because we know that. We believe it. We remind each other of it. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. And so these people uh, of God, they were privileged recipients. God confirming to them. And I hope this morning, this is God confirming to you, reinforcing the truth of God's steadfast faithfulness, God's reliability, God's integrity. He is the one who can always be trusted to do what he says. Number two, they're privileged recipients because they're recipients of divine intervention. Part of what God says to them, he says, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Now again, we must think of the context. For generations, these people uh, had labored under the whip of a superpower. Don't think of Egypt as, as some small, insignificant uh, uh, government or, or, or power. Th this is the superpower of the day. These people had suffered exploitation. They suffered abuse. I think they had resigned themselves that this was just their lot. I don't see any evidence of any underground resistance movement working plans to start a revolution. We're slaves. We're always going to be slaves. And so, as we look at Exodus, as we look at what God tells Moses, yeah, what we need to recognize, it was God who saw their plight. 
It was God who initiated and God who through Moses brought their rescue about from bondage. The point was Egypt was no match, even though it was a superpower, no match for God. So the people saw, the people of Israel saw what God did uh, to Egypt. He humiliated, I'm not going to go through the detail, but remember he humiliated Pharaoh's gods one by one, uh, attacking them as it were with ten terrible plagues. He drowned the army of Egypt in the sea. And, And so the point is these people, consciously helpless people, saw and experienced God's intervention, God's intervening help in their time of need. And so they're able to look back. They're able to marvel at the fact that God intervened for their good, delivering, from, delivering them from bondage, Him getting the glory. Number three, they were also privileged recipients of divine care. I love this verse, verse four. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how, and how I bore you On eagle's wings. So I did a bit of research. A couple of things and comments we can make about eagles. Uh, The first was, and this is just in passing, we know that the eagle is a fierce bird of prey. And so we could say it attacks its enemies in the way that God attacked Egypt. But that's not the point of this particular comment. It's also a bird of rescue. Wonderfully portrayed in Tolkien's book, The Hobbit. I'm seeing younger people nodding their heads. Older people maybe haven't read The Hobbit. Well, let me tell you a little bit about The Hobbit. At two different points in the story, the the heroes are rescued by the eagles, by eagles. The second one is the one I want to refer to. The second time is near the end, when they're surrounded by these goblins and hordes. and, And just at the moment when all seems to be lost, one of them, one of them gave a great cry. He had seen seen a sight that made his heart leap and dark shapes, small yet majestic against the distant glow. The eagles, the eagles, he shouted, the eagles are coming. Now just think of that in terms of our rescue from sin, their rescue from bondage. The eagle being this powerful figure, a symbol of the way God was at work. But more specifically, what God is mentioning for their encouragement and them being the privileged recipients of care, the wings of eagles also depict God's protective nurture and care. The same image appears in Deuteronomy 32. Moses here is singing a song, a song of God's love. And and let me read chapter 32 verse 9. But, But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage, he found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Verse 11, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. A beautiful picture. And I'll go a little bit further. The picture here, of course, is of a mother eagle. Now, this I've had to research this. I know there are bird specialists in the church. The mother eagle caring for her young. I did not know this, but eagles are especially helpless as little birds, eaglets. They remain in the nest for as many as 100 days. 
Then, when it is time for the young bird to leave the eyrie and learn to fly, the eagle stirs up the nest, that is the mother, and does not abandon her young. If they experience difficulties, the bird swoops down below them and lifts them up on his mighty wings, providing them with food, water, and victory in battle. Isn't that a privilege to be amongst God's people with that kind of care, demonstrated by an animal, but God, a bird, is bird an animal? Uh, uh, but God, God, you know, is the one, the, the one who who provides that kind of care for his people. What a privilege. Number four, also privileged recipients of divine intimacy. Again, verse four, he, he adds there, and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. What a privilege. God rescuing them from Egypt, led them to this holy mountain where they would worship him in, in all of his majesty. And, and so, so let's not think of the Exodus just as escape from bondage, from slavery. The Exodus is about delivery from bondage, but bringing Israel close to God. That's the point. Being brought from, so you brought to something new, something different. And, and you can read on, and God willing, in weeks to come, I'm going to look at this. In Exodus 19, there is a concentration of the glimpses of what I can only at this point say is the awesome and fearful and majestic and holy perfections of God. Slaves delivered close to worship God. What a privilege for them to be brought close to God at this mountain. Well, moving on in the passage, and we move on to verse 5. God now adds, Now therefore, as a condition, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession amongst all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Why does God add what I want to consider in my second point this morning, a puzzling condition? Most commentators skip this verse. <laughs> That's what I discovered. I want to call it a puzzling condition. Well, to try and understand this condition, there are a couple of things I need to say. We do need to understand, it's important to note that this statement was made to people by God who were already saved. So this statement is not being made for them to be saved. The Israelites had been delivered from bondage. And remember they had been redeemed by the Passover lamb. There had been the sacrifice that took place. Another thing I'm learning in the book of Exodus is that there's a progression of revelation. First of all, we see in the opening chapters, uh, God delivering his people from bondage, picturing the salvation that we uh, experience even today. We're going to see in weeks to come, he then gives the law. But what he does all the time is he acts and he continues to act toward his people by grace. Which still takes me back to the question, how then do we understand this condition? If you will do this and keep my covenant, then I will do that. 
Well, again, something about the covenant. Remember, the covenant was God's unbreakable promise of love to his people. He'd made this covenant with Abraham, promising to give him a land and a people who would bless the whole world. He confirmed the covenant with Isaac and Jacob, and God honored that promise and delivered them from Egypt. But now, in remember the unfolding of this progressive revelation, God is about now to reveal in fuller detail what the covenant demanded of them. Personal obedience. And so in Exodus 20, a chapter we all know, God gives the Ten Commandments, the law in the form of Ten Commandments. Now here's the question. Will the people, will any person be able to fully obey God? No. No. So the answer is given. We know in the rest of the Old Testament, if you know anything of your Old Testament, the people of Israel constantly fell short of obedience of the will of God. Do we ignore the verse? No. We must take this covenant condition seriously because God really does demand, did demand Israel's full obedience. But here's the point. Remember, this is revelation that has been unfolding progressively. It was not until Jesus came into the world for them is by grace. Don't think salvation in the Old Testament for the Jew was different to salvation for anybody else after the coming of Jesus. The detail of the law unveils the standard. The standard in terms of eternal justice that the holiness of God demanded. And so they then, they too needed to understand their total dependence on the grace and the mercy of God. And so perfect audition that God's people we know were unable to meet. They could not fulfill their covenant obligation. But as they struggled and failed to keep God's law... What do we see in the Old Testament? Well, many things, but certainly what I want to single out, the prophets pointing to the Savior to come. The one we know, looking back, Abel, the one who did. Perfectly keep God's uh, become disobedient. And so to add to that, following the giving of the law, again in the progression of Exodus, we substitutionary atonement coming in, 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 in very uh, basic form, but evoke and the priestly function of Jesus. We'll see it even in, in, in the priestly function later in the book of Exodus and also uh, the service at the tabernacle. And so the point is this. They needed, as we do, the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus. He's the mediator. We are told in Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verse 15, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeemed them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. 
Christ offers full obedience as a gift to the believer. He has suffered the penalty sinners deserved for their disobedience. And so we can say with confidence because of imputed righteousness, we can say with confidence the condition of full obedience has been met, which then takes us back to the passage in the next verse, uh, God's declaration to Moses regarding the people of God. Number three, a couple of teachers here in our congregation. At primary school, I never made it to be teacher's pet. Okay, any of you? Teachers always have pets. And I confess, looking on, if I remember to my grade seven, standard five year, there were two classmates that I were quite jealous. I was envious of them. We had this teacher who really was very, very nice to them. While, while the rest of us ate our peanut butter and jam sandwiches, the pets were blessed. Special outings with the teacher, burgers and cokes from the teacher. And I, I'm not exaggerating, this is genuinely the case. Now maybe some of you have been teacher's pets, I don't know. But let me tell you, it's one thing to be a teacher's pet, but infinitely more of a blessing to be singled out by God. And have Him lavish on us, blessing upon blessing. And just very quickly, uh, from this verse, we see that we, his people, are to him. In other words, his opinion, his view, a treasured possession. Verse 5, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. The Hebrew word over here is an interesting word, indicates royal property. My mind immediately went to the Cullinan Diamond. I don't know if anybody remembers the Cullinan Diamond, just found a couple of kilometers north of Pretoria over here, and it was uh, cut and polished, and it was given to the queen to put in her crown. They should ask it back. Uh, okay. but, but, but in that crown, it, it, it's a, a, a royal special possession, royal property, the most prized possession in the king's a treasury. That, that's what this word means. And so this declaration to them, would, would now it, it, it leads them to finally leave behind the identity as slaves. You, you, you're not no bodies, you're not at the bottom of the food chain, you're not these persecuted, uh, at least these these people being treated with injustice and abuse, you're God's prized possession. So the Israelites were saved, not better than others. They were God's treasured possession for no other reason. 7 verse 6, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession for you were the fewest of all people, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping
keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of the Pharaoh. A wonderful thing. To be to God a possession. But not just the treasured possession. He goes a step further here. But he has a special purpose for them. And just to quote the verse 6. To be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now again, one goes. We know that uh, the Levites do get appointed, and, and they're appointed to uh, carrying out those specified priestly duties in the tabernacle and later in the temple. But of the people of God, they were all to be a kingdom of priests, a whole nation of people set apart, that's the word holy, set apart to serve him and him in all of life. I just want to add a comment. They were also to serve the world, priests to the world. Quoting commentator Philip Riken, he says, Israel was chosen not only from the nations, but also for the nations. Remember the promise even to Abraham, families of the earth to be blessed. Now, looking at that passage, and I'll just simply call this implications. What about those of us who are believers here today? You're a believer. What about you? Um, are you, we privileged recipients? Is this just true of them? Or can we affirm this true of us? Are the promised blessings for us also? And, 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 and I, want, I want to rush to the New Testament. The Apostle Peter explicitly, explicitly identifies all the believers of the scattered terminology. It's not just isolated to them. Let me quote 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. Now remember, they're, they're a mixed bunch of people. They'd been converted, uh, Jews and Gentiles. They were gathering, but persecution started, so they were scattered to different places. He writes this letter that gets circulated amongst them, and this is the message. You are a chosen race. Not just speaking to the Jews, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's who they are. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so I want to encourage black or white. You, you ought to be encouraged today as to who you are to God. And... You ought to be stirred into action for God. So we here, 
Hill Campus, Arcadia Campus, Believers, South Africa, to the ends of the earth. We are recipients of divine promises. God is faithful in His undertakings. We are those who experience divine care. Just when we feel we're at the end of our tether, He never lets us fall. We are recipients of divine intervention. If you're a believer, it is because God has pursued you and intervened and arrested your attention and even brought you to the place of conversion and conviction. And isn't it a wonderful thing to be a recipient of divine intimacy, being able to come and to worship God? So God has lavished His love on us. Evidence of this work and many other works around the city and, and this country. We to go back to my introduction. That we can often be conflicted. I don't know if you are like feelings and confusion around and, and above it and underneath it. We can. Thou knowest, Lord, I'm thine. And so as we look back on 10 years, we do so with gratitude to God. As we go forward until the Lord comes or calls for us. Thank you for listening to the sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.